Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of Truth to Power with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP Louisville, broadcasting from the historic Hebron building here at 106.5 FM or live streaming wherever you are in the world at forwardradio.org. Uh, what we do here on Truth to Power is assemble folks from around the community for a conversation like you won't hear anywhere else. And this week, I'm really excited to kick off a series we're going to do highlight the amazing conversations that happened at the most recent Environmental Justice Conference held on October 1st. It was virtual again this year. And the theme of this year's Environmental Justice Conference that was put on by the West Jefferson County Community Task Force and the NAACP, uh, the theme was Climate Change and Health, People, Principles, priorities, and policymaking. And to that end, we're going to hear uh, three of the talks from the day's events on October 1st. We're going to kick it off with Tom Fitzgerald, former executive director of the Kentucky Resources Council on Is There an Environmental Justice Policy? How does it work in our legal system? Then we're going to hear a little bit about odor issues in our city with Rachel Hamilton, director of the Louisville Air Pollution Control District, and Damon Talley, operations manager at the Metropolitan Sewer District. And we'll wrap it up today with Sarah Lynn Cunningham, director of the Louisville Climate Action Network on their Urban Energy Partnership. Stay tuned, folks. It's going to be a great truth to power here on Forward Radio. I am honored to be here, and I am the former director of the Kentucky Resources Council. I am now uh, out to pasture, as it were, but I appreciate this opportunity. Today, those of you who are participating and, and those of you who will see the taped version in the future will have the opportunity to hear from some wonderful speakers about the intersection of climate and environmental justice. And I just wanted to help set the table a little bit for the conversation. Uh, Arnita gave me 20 minutes, uh, and knowing full well that having been vaccinated with a phonograph needle, it's hard for me to say my name in 20 minutes, let alone to say anything of any substance. So, but you know, climate change is occurring inexorably, rapidly, and dangerously. And the impact of climate change on human health and on existing inequities is profound in terms of air pollution, increasing allergens, extreme heat, severe weather, environmental degradation, degraded living conditions, and social inequities, changes in vector ecology, water, food, water quality impacts in all of these ways. The dramatic, the unpredictable change in climate is worsening and widening the environmental inequities and injustices that have been baked into our culture and our economy and our society. But I wanted to talk to you very briefly just about a different type of climate change, because the climate change has 42 years as an advocate in Kentucky on environmental issues representing those who live downhill and downwind and downstream is, is a recognition that we all live downhill and downwind and downstream when it comes to climate change issues. And the climate that we need to work on changing is the climate in our politics, our economics, and our culture that would sacrifice our future and sacrifice the quality of life 
of current and future generations in some areas and some communities for the sake of one more cheap kilowatt, one more cheap gallon of gas, one more cheap gadget, one more cheap factory farmed meal. It's of necessity a challenge to change the culture of just us to one of justice in all of its forms, racial, economic, gender, generational, and more. You'll hear today from Larry Taylor, who is a wonderful resource who works on the state level, trying to implement environmental justice in all of the different regulatory programs that the cabinet, uh, the the environment and uh, uh, energy cabinet uh, has under its umbrella. And you'll hear from representatives of the of the federal government in terms of the re- resources that are available to help support environmental justice in communities. What I wanted to talk to you just very briefly about and get you thinking about are local initiatives and local opportunities to infuse justice into the way that governance occurs in Louisville and in other communities. For so many of our day-to-day decisions that profoundly affect the lives of individuals happen not at the federal level and not at the state level, but happen at the local level. Federal environmental laws set a floor on environmental degradation. State laws, unfortunately, in states like Kentucky, have all too often incorporated that federal floor as our state ceiling. And we have ensconced in our laws the goal of doing the absolute minimum that is required by federal law to allow us to maintain these environmental programs at the state level. But local governments are not bound to accept the minimum as our standard. We have a wellspring of opportunities to go beyond the minimum to try to address disparate and cumulative adverse impacts, to try to reduce pollution burdens, and to make environmental justice and individual and community health our core principles in decision-making in matters of land use and transportation planning, infrastructure, and other planning. And I wanted to just highlight for a second some of the tools that are available and get you thinking about it. Zoning and planning is a significant and powerful area. In 2020, the Metro Council adopted Resolution 2020-082, which called on the Planning Commission to review our land development code, which are the regulations that govern land use decisions, to try to develop recommendations for more equitable and inclusive development. If you are a citizen in Metro Louisville, you need to be plugged into that process and you need to be heard, not only on the substantive policies that have have isolated certain communities and have burdened those communities with what other people would call locally undesirable land uses, that have the concentration as Houston did back in the late 70s. Houston was, as was North Carolina, a hotbed for the the beginning of the modern environmental justice movement, where all, most of the, all of the landfills, private and public landfills, were burdening the black communities within Houston. And, and that was not a matter of happenstance. That is a matter of structural policies that create and enhance and allow those sorts of inequities to occur. Zoning and planning tools, both procedural and substantive tools, are a powerful mechanism for trying to reverse decades of institutional policies and to infuse 
justice more broadly into uh, local decision making. Environmental reviews are another tool that can be used. I envision the idea of a cross-cutting policy that requires a screen, if you will, that requires for every investment decision, for every development decision, for every governmental decision that affects the quality of life of individuals, that there be an environmental justice screen, an environmental justice review that 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 the master plan of the city incorporates environmental justice goals, that you strengthen existing codes, and that you amend development practices so that the impact of decision-making on equity and on justice is a front and center rather than being an afterthought, another box that gets checked while you go about doing the things that you've always done that have gotten us where we are. Proactive planning is another issue where environmental justice and equity considerations should be front and center. Another is strengthening public health codes. Long before, and Sarah Lynn can tell you that because she's done a lot of work studying it, long before there was an air pollution control district, we had a smoke board that was dealing with the impacts of industrial development on quality of life. And we are, out of 120 counties, the only county in Kentucky that has a local air pollution district. And we're privileged to have Rachel with us today, uh, uh, Rachel Hamilton, who is is uh, the current director of that air pollution control district. Strengthening public health codes, nuisance codes, and other public health codes is another strategy that can be used um, to begin to address at the local level some of the impacts of environmental inequities. And finally, uh, strengthening our air pollution ordinances. You know, one of the frustrations that, that some of the permit reviewers have at the Air Pollution Control District is when people show up for particular permitting decisions, what they want to talk about is reducing the overall pollution burden. But the permit reviewer is bound by certain limitations in what they can do. And while we have made great progress in Louisville in reducing the amount of air toxics that are being emitted from industrial sources and from smaller area sources, over the years. The problem is that we have, the, the bar has been one of bringing us into the minimum level of attaining air quality that is not unhealthy and has been reducing to a certain part per million or a certain one in a, a million or two or seven in a million, the risks that are being posed by the emissions of air toxics into our airshed. We need to take it to the next step. We need to do what Bob Bullard, Professor Bullard uh, suggested are the core principles of environmental justice, one of those being the reinstitution of the precautionary principle. You have a number of people from the health community who are going to be talking today about environmental health. One of the, the tragedies of our separation of environmental protection laws from environmental health laws is we lost the idea of the precautionary principle, and we shifted the burden so that rather than first do no harm and informed consent, we gave due process to the chemicals and we eliminated the ability of the individual to, to make a decision whether they want that exposure. You know, we have a lot of chemicals being emitted into our airshed. There is no therapeutic level of breathing most of those chemicals. And we need to look at flipping the script at going the next level and saying, if you are proposing to emit 
X amount of pollution into the airshed. We want to see you reduce the overall burden. We have what are called offsets for certain chemicals, for volatile organic chemicals, for CO, for some other things. Why not take it the next step where we ask by what right you are using the public's air for waste disposal or the public's land or the public's water? And we start to drive down the use of the commons as somebody's waste disposal strategy. So we've got a lot in front of us. Fortunately, we're not writing on a blank slate. There are 23 other communities as of 1979 that have tried to utilize one or another of these tools that are available. And one of the things that I'm going to give you, um, and Arnita is going to make sure that all of you have access to the, the handouts that are presented today, um, I'm going to send her and she will make sure that you get our Environmental Justice 101, which is a basic primer on environmental justice, on the history, on the struggles in, in, North, in Warren County, North Carolina, in Houston back in the 80s, and the rise of the environmental justice, the modern environmental justice movement. But there's also a local toolkit that was created by the New School up in New York with the assistance of NRDC that is scanning 23 communities, Newark, Minneapolis, a number of other communities, Commerce, California, of all places, that are that have tried these various tools and provide some powerful opportunities for us to determine our, our future in terms of environmental justice. One of the places to start is this community and all communities need to impanel a work group that is representative of frontline communities supported by groups like the Enviro Institute and, and the Brandeis Law School, the university generally, and other resources that are available in the private and public sector to define the problems and to look at what are the best strategies so that another generation doesn't live, so that another day doesn't dawn where these inequities are considered to be a respectable price of quote-unquote doing business. So I wish you all the best today. It is a privilege to be here to help kick this off. Wish you all the best. Before I get started, I do want to note that here in Louisville, as you've heard this morning, that the Air Pollution Control District is a bit different than our state counterpart. We can be more stringent, of course, than the state and federal programs. And our Strategic Toxic Air Reduction Program is a really good example. And without the work of the West Jefferson County Task Force in the early 2000s, and many other partners, including Dr. Adewale Troutman, the district would not have been able to develop that STAR program. It was actually implemented by our board in 2005, and that seems like a really long time ago. I just want to assure everyone that STAR is a do for the district. It's not a did. It's something that we do every day, and it shows up in our air monitoring data, and it shows up in our compliance with those national ambient air quality standards. Our area currently meets and exceeds the National Ambient Air Quality Standards for all six of the criteria of pollutants. Really happy about that. We're expecting redesignation from US EPA for the 2015 ozone standard here shortly, and we'll let folks know when that's been approved at the federal level. All right. Well, with that, recently, uh, folks may have become aware that odors from MSD's operations have impacted a pretty widespread of global residents especially those who live west of Ninth. So I'm gonna start with an overview of our APCD regulation 1.13, which is our odor regulation. 
and point out a couple of really important things, including regulation, how we implement and enforce those regulations with both regulated entities and MSD. So it's pretty straightforward. You may have heard earlier that the district has been here for about 70 years. We did start as something called the Smoke Commission. And this regulation really incorporates some of the basic elements of what we call public nuisance law. No person shall emit or cause to be emitted into the ambient air any substance that creates an objectionable odor beyond the person's property line. Then comes how do we implement that? So an odor will be deemed objectionable when a documented investigation by the district includes this as a minimum. Observation on the odor's nature, intensity, duration, and of location and evidence that that odor is causing injury, detriment, nuisance, or annoyance to persons or the public. And again, that really harkens back to that early public nuisance law. On our website, and here through this link, you'll find a copy of our APCD odor investigation procedures, where our compliance officers, a group of four of the hardest working folks here in APCD's Office of 55 Environmental Engineers, Scientists, and other professionals, to actually go out in the field in response to the complaints that the public provides. So let's talk about what happens when we have a complaint from the public about an objectionable odor. There are lots of stinky odors out there. They can come from animal operations, livestock hauling, even food processing and tanning. Sometimes those odors are a little bit unusual. We're all familiar with Swift. We've seen trucks pass us on the highway. Those odors we know about. But even something like coffee processing, which often can smell good, can also be objectionable. Wastewater treatment plants and catch basins may emit sewage odors. There can often be objectionable odors from industrial-related operations, including landfills, chemical manufacturing, and even distilleries. You get a fair amount of odors just from nature uh, that can include composting. If you've ever been working out in your yard and opened up a bag of damp mulch, or opened up your compost heap, you'll get odors from that sometimes. Forest fires are another source. Vehicles are a large source of air pollution and they too may emit odors. And then finally, there's just a whole slew of other things, uh, restaurants, spray paint, and other things that may be illegal, like a meth operation. We're gonna talk a little bit at the end here about how to report odors, but if you believe that an odor is coming from an illegal operation, such as a meth lab, we strongly encourage you to dial 911 first before you report that to the district. When a person makes a report of an odor to the district from whatever source it comes in, we log that into a database and where appropriate, we share that with other responsible agencies. And that may include MSD or even the public health department. That complaint is assigned to a compliance officer. They go out in the field because we're here in Jefferson County, our COs can be anywhere in a very short period of time. They make those necessary observations as required by our rule. They go out and absolutely stand in the field and observe the nature, intensity, duration, and location of those odors. When they return to the office, they document their findings. So we keep logs of their observations. They may refer a matter to enforcement or they may continue that investigation for additional surveillance. I really want to talk about that, that last step. Odors can be quite fleeting. If someone makes a report of an odor and we go out in the field and we don't observe it, but we continue to have reports of that odor, we'll add that complaint's location to our regular surveillance. And we'll go periodically by that area without having 
to have a complaint from the public. So that allows us to observe it at a lot of different hours. Those complaints that we see as recurring complaints, those are incredibly important to us because we recognize that we aren't here 24 hours a day. When you make a report of an odor and we don't observe it, but it keeps coming up, we're able to dedicate resources to it after hours. And in fact, with this recent spate of odor complaints from the sewer system, our COs have gone out after 5 p.m. and before 8 a.m. on several occasions to be sure that we're observing what people are reporting to us. Okay, so a wise social scientist uh, has observed that uh, the human mind is a story processor, it's not a logic processor. And so trying to take our complaint information and really make this uh, more transparent, not just for APCD, but for the affected community, for others who are responsible for odors, for others who are responsible for policy, we've put together a monthly report that's available on our board's webpage. This will bring you information about any nuisance complaint that includes open burning and dust. There'll be a brief summary of the uh, complaint, the district's response to that complaint, and then those next steps that may be a no action necessary, no problem was observed, a warning letter or a referral to enforcement, or we're adding that to an ongoing investigation for continued surveillance so that you can see what steps APCD has taken in response to your complaint. I do want to be clear, if you include your contact information in your complaint, our compliance officers, when they return to the office, will make every effort to call you back and talk with you. Complaints can be made anonymously, and we understand that, but just understand we won't be able to call and speak with you, but you'll be able to monthly access this report and see what actions we've taken to assist you. Go to step outside here a minute and just say, if you haven't signed up to receive notices from APCD yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. There's a WUFU forum on our website, it's easy to do, but each month you'll get an agenda for the Air Pollution Control Board. And they include for you an opportunity to speak with them each month, just as a standing opportunity on their agenda. And Arnita, in fact, often comes and takes advantage of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But you'll also get notices of action taken by APCD, uh, including our permitting and enforcement decisions. So please consider signing up with us and staying aware of the work that we're doing. That report that I showed you is very static. It's a monthly, report of what happened. This is a little bit different. This is a, another way that you can look at complaints and their disparate impact across global metro. This is an active dashboard. The data in it, however, is static. We're updating this on a quarterly basis. Right now, uh, our system that we use for logging complaints uh, isn't quite as uh, flexible as we'd like it to be. And so we have to build this dashboard kind of manually at this point, but it will be updated on a quarterly basis. Just like that report, here you can see the report of the odor or other nuisance issue that was reported to the district, the results of the district's uh, investigation. But you can look at those across the city and do a lot of comparison here. We think this is a pretty powerful tool that's valuable for understanding, again, odor impacts and their disparities across the city. So we are a regulatory agency um, that is part of our role here in Louisville. If as a result of our odor investigation, 
we established that the facility doesn't meet uh, the provisions of Reg 1.13, and that includes observing the odor's nature, intensity, characteristic, and so on, and evidence of its injury to the public. That's where we really need your assistance. Uh, to some extent, our odor reg talks about injury, detriment, nuisance. When you report to us that it made you feel bad or that you couldn't enjoy your porch or open your windows, that helps us satisfy that statutory and regulatory requirement for documenting an odor violation. We appreciate that. We use that to prepare a notice of violation. The notice of violation includes a letter explaining our process, a report deal that details our investigation and our finding, penalties, if any are assessed, and compliance requirements. I want to step back and say that our first order of business is requiring a company to take measures to stop the odor. So compliance is really key. We want to do that before we even finish the paperwork on the NOV letter because that's the mitigating strategy that needs to happen. So the way APCD's regulatory work takes place is our board, our regulatory authority, has to approve any settlement that exceeds $5,000. They have to hold a public hearing, which takes place generally during their regular monthly board meeting. So again, another reason why I really encourage you to sign up to stay in touch with APCD. That agreed board order may include a penalty and, if necessary, compliance measures. If we can't reach settlement, then we go to, to an administrative hearing or we go to court as appropriate. So I'm going to give you a couple examples here and talk about one in particular in a little more length. So at one end of the spectrum, we have a private company, Swift where we've issued them multiple notices of violation. These date back to a settlement from 2017. At the time, the civil penalty there was $124,000 because it covered a wide variety of instances over a long period of time. It also had compliance requirements, quarterly audits, third-party review of rendering and scrubber operations, among those that were uh, included in their agreed board order. There's a link where you can see that agreed board order. Now uh, you'll find a multi-year compendium of our agreed board orders on our board's webpage. And for more recent actions on our enforcement page, you can actually go through and see the notices of violation as they're issued. At the time that this enforcement action was taken, we ultimately ended up filing an administrative action. It was subsequently settled. Since then, We've filed a second petition for administrative hearing, and that's linked on our enforcement's uh, status report that we give to the board each month. And you can find that uh, petition link there. Let's spend a little bit more time here on MSD. So MSD is a little bit different. They are a critical part of our community's public and public health and public safety infrastructure. They keep the sewage out of our streets and homes. They protect us from the floodwaters of the Ohio River. That said, they are saddled with a collection system that often emits odors. And in the summer of 2017, conditions much like we've experienced recently, hot, dry, late August, there was a spate of odor complaints, best of night. But in lieu of a civil penalty, 
We completed a settlement agreement with MSD that's ongoing. As part of that, we asked them to focus on those odors west of Ninth and really dig in and identify why we're seeing odors there in the collection system. And for those of you who are on the call, Louisville is uh, not unlike many cities of its age in that our collection system, as Justin mentioned this morning, takes in both rainwater and sewage water. It's called a combined stormwater sewer system, handles both of them. And generally it does so quite well, but when it gets hot and dry, wastewater flow really uh, drops off. The biological processes that typically happen at Morris Foreman are happening in the streets in front of our homes and businesses instead. What MSD has done is they've developed an odor control webpage. And I'm sure that uh, Damon and Rick Robin Birch, who's also on this uh, summit this morning, they'll talk about that in detail. But on their odor control page, you'll find that uh, MSD was required to put together their cleaning schedule and publish how often they'll clean the catch basins, which serve basically as a, a trap to keep odors within the collection system. They were required to go through and evaluate the integrity of the collection system because of the catch basins in a particular area. Park Duval, for example, are in poor repair. They'll emit odors into the neighborhoods. You'll find that assessment in those odor control technical memos and then a very detailed and quite interesting odor control master plan interim final report from Morris Foreman uh, that is also available on their website. They have a monthly odor complaint report, much like our complaint report posted to their website in an archive. So again, people can see what's happened with their complaint and what action MSD has taken. And finally, we also ask them to hold a series of community meetings to hear from the community most impacted by odors in their neighborhood. They've held four meetings and they will be holding a fifth and I'm sure they'll share the date of that upcoming meeting with you in their presentation. So I'm going to skip forward here and just touch on how you report odors. If an odor is affecting your immediate health or safety, please dial 911. And that is because we have some amazing professionals here in our community. Those are our first responders and they are trained to be sure that that odor that may be causing you discomfort isn't one that requires immediate mitigation. You can report odors to APCD by calling us, by reaching us through our website. We have an online form. You can call Metro Call 311 or use the Smell My City app. We get those reports directly to a, they come directly to us and we treat them as a complaint as if you made them in any other media. And we truly appreciate your continued help in understanding the odors that you're experiencing in your neighborhood. We don't have any technology that is as sophisticated at discerning odors as your nose. Unfortunately, we can smell odors at, at levels well below we have equipment to detect them at. So again, we appreciate your help. When you report odors to us, if you can let us know what you're experiencing, time, location, duration, it's been going on for weeks, the nature, it smells like sewage. Uh, we'll take any description you can give us, a likely source, if you know what it may be, B, and then its impact on you. Is it impacting your health? Is it impacting the way you use your home? I can't sit on my porch or open my windows. And then if you'd like, please include your contact information and we will reach back out to you. My contact information 
you can reach me through this number. And I truly appreciate girls' interest in our work. With that, Arnita, back to you. Well, what can I say? Thank you so much, uh, Rachel. I think that that's a very important, especially now because of you know, the oldest we've had in the very past. So thank you so much for making that presentation. Let's move right along. Our time is getting short here. Damon Talley. Yeah, good afternoon. Okay. That's going to be a hard act to follow. People gave my MSD presentation for me. Okay, well, tell them a little bit about you. You, you, you have a bachelor's in, chem, in chemical engineering from U of L, treatment facilities. Um, man, overseas operations of five water quality treatment centers and overseas odor control and biosolids. So good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having us. So for the most part, this will be just a quick run through, uh, touch on some topics with regards to what MSD. One, what we do, give a quick explanation of the combined sewer system and what we're responsible for. Just a couple of topics we'll touch on uh, this September. Uh, compared to 2019, when we've got our notice, uh, an NOB from APCD, and entered into our agreement to, we created the Clarity Program, which is our Louisville MSD Older Program. And I'll try and share that screen too. So, so bear with me. So, first off, uh, MSD is responsible for all wastewater treatment, flood protection, stormwater drainage for the Jefferson County area. Recently, uh, starting last year, we've reached out in terms of regionalization. We now have an additional eight wastewater treatment plants in Odom County. We have eight plants in Bullock County and are responsible for the operations of biosolids and wastewater in those two counties, along with the five regional plants. Five regional plants here, of course, are more forming the largest one in the combined sewer system. Treats uh, anywhere from 60 to 100 million gallons a day during dry weather. Can treat up to 350 during wet weather. Uh, Derrick Guthrie, which is southwest Jefferson County, Cedar Creek, off of Barstown Road, Floyd's Fork, right in the parklands of Floyd's Fork, and Hike Creek, northeastern part of Jefferson County, up against Oldham County, serves that area. So initiative updates. So let's start with this month, September of 2022. Let's start... Uh, I think uh, real quick. So for the month of September, we have had, I think, 332 odor complaints in the combined, and uh, all of Jefferson County. So this has been a unique month. And I think one thing I'll, I'll say is I think our community meeting, as Rachel mentioned, and I think a recent uh, a story that ran on the news locally has helped uh, get folks more involved. Uh, and I'll say this, of those 332 I've seen them in every zip code, 40241, 40211, 40210, 40058, 40216, 14, Portland, uh, Taylor Berry, Park Duval, California neighborhood. We've got odor complaints from all over the county. So one of the things with our odor control plan and our program is we were required to start in Park Duval. Let me start there by saying uh, the work that was has been completed. The catch basins have been repaired in Park Duval. We have moved on to California neighborhood. We have inspected over 900 catch basins in California neighborhood. There are 71 that are, will need to be repaired. We're now in the phase of updating, going through and determining what work needs to be done. One thing I want to talk about is from a financial standpoint, uh, in Park Duval, each catch basin averaged $20,000 to repair. So going into California, we're talking 71. Uh, and they'll average about the same amount. One of the things is we, we, we've gotten 
uh, lucky and we've gotten some money that will come from uh, Congressman Yarman's office to help with these repairs. And while we're doing that, we've already uh, inspected over half of the catch basins in the Chickasaw neighborhood. After that will be done, we will then move on to Shawnee and Taylor Berry. So September 2022 has been excessive amount of odor complaints. So rain-wise, let's go back to 2019 that year when we got our NOB. Rain in Jefferson County was 0. 0.07 inches for the whole month. It was the driest September on record. And for this September, I think we've had, uh, this has been just a little over an inch. This is our third dry September on record in Jefferson County. So they, of course, are higher in the combined sewer area. So the touch on that, for those that may not have attended any of our community meetings or when I presented at West Jefferson County Community Task Force, is uh, combined sewers take in stormwater and sanitary wastewater from our homes uh, during dry weather. They'll all go into the sanitary sewage will go into the pipe, will be conveyed to more Foreman for treatment. During storm events, uh, stormwater will mix. It will allow so much of it to go to the plant to be treated. We now have a number of basins, Shawnee Basin, Logan Street Basin, Portland Basin, that and now the tunnel is in service, been in service since June. We can divert flow to those, so we do not have CSOs as part of our consent decree. You know, by the by the time we're done with our consent decree, we have to capture 98% of all stormwater and treat it. So that's been a unique uh, task for us, and the new tunnel will capture 55 million. So again, once the storm event is passed, all of that will be conveyed. So that's where we do play a vital part in the community from a health standpoint. But again, what happens is when we're not in the rainy season or the winter season and we're in these hot, dry months, you get these odors, uh, that rotten egg, sewer smell that you get. And so with that, you have the lack of rain, low velocities in the sewer, cause ex excessive amount of odors. So I talked about a normal year. We should get 3.61 inches of rain in September. This year, 1.5. Five three, and the biggest thing is 0.38 since September 5th. So third dry since 2010. So no rain equals slower water flow in the sewer. Uh, our sewer lines and combined sewer range in size from eight inches up to 27 foot diameter sewer uh, southwestern outfall. So some of those larger sewers, when you have low flow, can cause can cause that issue for that hydrogen sulfide to build up. So so catch basins, untrapped damage, or even dry catch basins. So let's start with Park Duval. Uh, Park Duval, we've still had a number of odor complaints this year, even though we have corrected all of those catch basins that were damaged. But that goes back to, again, the way catch Park Duval was configured with, we have separate catch basins that come back together downstream to go to Morris Foreman. So again, they've been extremely dry. Uh, I know Ben and Manhole is. So let's talk about those. We talk about the different sizes of our sewer system pipes. One of the things, if you've been in Louisville long enough and years pass and we have heavy heavy rains or rains come down really fast, you've probably witnessed or, uh, a manhole that this pressure builds up in the sewer. It can cause a manhole to pop. So there are certain areas due to those uh, potentials, there are vented manholes. So again, when it's dry, you can get older from the vented manhole. And not only do we have a combined sewer system, when I mean, you think of the West End and a lot of us, you have access to your alley, to your garage or back of your yard, your driveway. There are catch basins in the alley, too. So you may not have one directly in front of your house, but there may be one in the back. Pump stations, pump stations. Of course, we're responsible for flood protection. There are 16 flood pumping stations, Starkey, one of the main ones downtown. 
uh, 4th Street, uh, 34th Street pump station. Again, pump stations and even out in the separate system, I'll talk a little bit about real quick with regards to the odor complaints we're getting out there. There is opportunities as you go from a force main to a gravity sewer and also a pump station. If Again, low flow, dry weather, it's moving slower. Uh, and then talk about an area out there that I got. we got an email and call about. Odors seem to only happen at 6 o'clock. Six to about eight, a little later. And one of the things you got to think about during the day when everyone's gone, and this area has gravity and force mains, as you start to add flow, it starts to churn up that smell. You can have that 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 uh, hydrogen sulfide and that rotten egg smell. And also in a separate sewer system, you still have catch basins on the curve that go directly to a stream. And when they go directly to a stream, the difference in the combined system is we can go through and we can flush those sewers. Whereas in a separate sewer system, those catch basins go directly to a stream. We can't use chlorinated water. So what we did was we mapped the odor complaints for September and we call them the hot spots. So where you see the red is where we have a congregation of odor complaints. And what I tried, we tried to do uh, was break them out to three smaller maps so you can kind of see some of the areas and, and kind of see the focus. So if you, you can see the red, it's all over the place, even the small light blue ones. But as you go out beyond the Waterson Expressway, you can see there are odor complaints throughout the city. Uh, let's focus on the one up to your top left, where you see that down in that Park Duval area, a, a number of odor complaints. Again, it's, uh, again, dry sewers. And again, their unique configuration of separate back to combined sewer systems. Uh, if you come down to the map just below you, you see that area is right along downtown. We've seen a number of complaints pick up around Lee Street, Fifth Street area. We have a small lift station there that we, we've gone out and investigated. We've, uh, when we've gotten calls. We try to look at the assets that are in the area. When we get the Smell My City emails, we'll look at those. And if we see catch basins or we see pump stations, We'll go investigate and see. I know one of the things we're doing is we have uh, the past couple of days, and we'll probably do them for a few more days. We've been filling up a couple of our uh, basins, Logan Street Basin uh, and, and Shawnee Basin. We've been filling them up with city water and hopefully adding a little granular chlorine to help maybe get that flush through. But really the big thing we're going to need is is rain. So what can you do? As I think Rachel mentioned a little bit about it, what we can do is we're going to inspect catch basins for damage. We're going to clean and flush catch basins if we have the ability in the combined system. As I mentioned, we're going to inspect those pump stations, water quality treatment centers. You know, we're working internally with our customer relations group to make sure we come up with the right scripts, make sure we, we start to get those customer complaints to the right departments that can go and address those immediately and try to get some relief for our customers. You know, what you can do is you can call us. You can go to our website. We're there. We have customer relations 24-7. And I'll say this, sometimes you'll call and we've had people call and say, well, I went straight to voicemail. Well, there are only so many and calls roll over. Think of any time you call lg and if powers out. You may not get through immediately the first time, but I would say keep calling. This is our clarity program, smell something, say something. You can report an odor to MSD. Here you'll have, you can fill out a survey that will help us determine the location. So that page, like I said, it'll take you directly to there. As you, you scroll down, odors inside your home, how to, how to identify odors inside your home or business. We talk about adding water to the drains can pre prevent sewer odors. It was interesting. We had, I saw a smell my city the other day. and The customer reported that it seems like it's coming through my drain in the basement. 
So I would say, especially in a combined system, those drains in your basement and the West End are connected directly to our sewers. And you can go down there and pour a little water down there for that trap in the basement. Quarters outside your home, the water quality treatment centers, pump stations, catch basins. So again, you know, we, we're, we want to be good stewards in the community. We've developed this program. We work with APCD, Smell My City app. When they contact us, you know, we, we, we try to address complaints in a timely fashion in those areas. So one of the big things, again, we're hoping here in the next few weeks, we'll get some rain to help flush the sewers. But that right now is the biggest issue with the odors. Uh, I'll say this. I was in Cincinnati earlier this week for a conference, and I was downtown walking. And as I stood there on the curb over a catch basin, got that rotten egg smell. I was just down in Nashville yesterday with my daughter visiting a university just south of downtown. And right where I was sitting at outside, the weather was great. There was a catch basin right there, and you got a faint smell. So it's, I think, Preacher mentioned, I'll say this, anything east of the Mississippi is usually your larger urban areas, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, or combined sewer systems. And they're experiencing the, these same issues. I was speaking with a peer in Cincinnati, and we're going to do some collaboration together, find out some of the things they're doing to address odors. But he said that's a big issue for the inner area, downtown area of Cincinnati. So with that, I'll turn it back over and appreciate the opportunity to speak. I want to talk to you about our new project called Urban Energy Partnership. The subtitle from red line to triple bottom line, I will explain in a minute. But first, I want to give an overview of who LCAN is. Uh, We are a 15-year-old local environmental network, currently 55-0 organizations, businesses, et cetera, uh, make up the network. And we have three main branches of um, programming. And the first is education. And that includes everything from videos to an e-newsletter to a website, uh, classes, et cetera, the, the usual predictable stuff. We also have an advocacy branch. And so, for example, most recently when an industry was going to make some significant modifications in Rubbertown recently, uh, there were some concerns that perhaps the hazardous uh, emissions from their smokestacks would increase. And so we hired a national level expert to tell us what's the story here, what should we do? Uh, Based upon his recommendations, we advocated for some uh, stronger terms on the permit, and we got one of them. So it's a start, I suppose. And then the last is services. And uh, the thesis here is that most people or businesses are not going to agree to invest four or five digits into their property unless they're fairly comfortable that they're doing the right product and the right sizing and all that kind of stuff. I am an engineer, and therefore we have um, the ability to help these folks more than perhaps the typical environmental group. So I'm going to now stick with the services part, and our process starts with a paper audit. We look at the bills of our clients to make sure that they're even in the right um, billing class. So, for example, uh, one nonprofit that we worked are working with um, earlier this year, we had our first site visit, and I asked for a copy of an LG&E bill. And before we left the property, we were able to determine that they had long been paying 
for their next door neighbor's streetlights. And I mean, like for 20 years, they had been paying for a couple of streetlights that weren't even on their property. And so we got that fixed and that was a windfall for them. Um, then we go through and do an energy audit, which of course is substantially more thorough than this illustration. But we tried to get into people's closets, meaning their mechanical rooms, and uh, check things out and try to find what's going on and how we can reduce their utility consumption uh, and where and how. Then we help them to, if they need the help, and they usually do, uh, we help them to do a request for services or materials. We help them to evaluate the bids. And if necessary, we help them to oversee the contractor doing the actual work that implements our recommendations. Then we do the paperwork, which is actually more complicated than you would guess, for them to get their rebates from LG&E. What folks don't realize perhaps is that for all practical purposes, LG&E customers fall into three classes, residential, industrial, and pretty much everybody else is in the middle. So nonprofits and small businesses, they're all in this uh, commercial class and the commercial class is the only one that can still get energy or rebates for energy efficiency work. And they're paying the money into the pot for these rebates every month. So our attitude is if you're paying for them, you might as well take advantage of them, but we do the paperwork for our clients so that they're sure to get everything that they're owed. And then we offer an optional service of when it's appropriate, we have enough data to support it. We offer to do the, the process of getting them certified as an energy star building. You have to have an engineer or an architect to do that. So it's something that's easy for us to do. So that's what we were doing. And then came George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and lots of middle-class white folks like me were like, OMG, that's the printable version. It, you know, it disabused me of some of my uh, uh, perceptions or understandings or assumptions about how the police treat people. Because of course I haven't had particularly bad experiences with the police, but this, this hit us all in the face. And you may remember that right then, most uh, community groups issued a, a statement, an anti-racism statement. And so we decided, okay, I guess we should do that too. And we had a lot of discussions. And that's when I was reminded that not all black people think the same, just like not all white people think the same. And we had people telling us that we should completely reinvent the organization and focus on racism, which I didn't think was realistic for us. So we thought really long and hard about how can we combat racism and even up the score a little bit, but in a way that's true to ourselves and our skills. And um, what we decided to do, and I should also note that coincidentally with all this uh, earlier, not totally coincidentally, but earlier this year, the cost of gas, natural gas jumped 30% and there was a rate hike. And so our thinking was, all right, let's offer our services for free to a half a dozen nonprofits in town that primarily serve Louisville's black and brown community so that they would be able to spend less on utilities and more on mission. That is the slogan, spend less on utilities, more on mission. So if the natural gas prices jump up 30% alone, that means you've got less time for tutors for after school programs. You've got less of an ability to staff up your homeless center, et cetera, et cetera. 
So we added to our program, this program, uh, the Urban Energy Partnership. Don't ask me why I still have that page under construction thing. I meant to take that off. But anyway, its tagline is from red line to the triple bottom line. So my guess is everybody here knows about this historical phenomenon that we still live with indirectly today. But just in case, there was a point in time when the entire city of Louisville was carved up into colored districts. And so if you lived in the A district right here, the green district, which isn't even showing up in this West End shot, then if you applied for a mortgage or a loan to upgrade your home, you essentially were going to get it unless you just didn't, you know, have, you had other problems with your credit. And if you lived in the blue district, you were probably going to get the loan. <clears throat> but if you lived in a yellow district or worse, a red district, the yellow, you were going to be scrutinized extremely difficult, uh, harshly, and you were probably dead on arrival if you were in the red district. So people were able to invest in their homes substantially less. People weren't able to buy homes. And if you put more money into your home than you can get back out, then people go, whoa, I'm not doing that. And so what a surprise in these redlined areas and even in the yellow and some of the blue, uh, the value of the housing has gone down and it has led to generational poverty. So the triple bottom line, conversely, looks at economic sustainability environmental sustainability and social sustainability. So we were and are looking for this project to help various nonprofits to um, bridge this gap and to make progress that will benefit the organizations and, and more to the point, their constituents. So earlier this summer, we did a soft start and we were given a chunk of money and, and two and a half months to spend it. Last night, we turned in the report so these are the organizations that we invited to participate and that accepted the invitation. And of course, there were some that we invited that just couldn't meet the timetable. But these organizations, you probably recognize at least some of them. They all serve primarily black and brown folks or both. And we decided upon visiting their sites and, and given the timeline that for all but the last one, we were going to focus on relamping. So they all had fluorescent lights and many of them were really inefficient. And a lot of them were what we call T8 and they were much more efficient than the old T12s, but they were still inefficient compared to LEDs. And the other concern of course is these contain mercury. So if you drop one, it's a given the mercury is gonna come out because it's under slight pressure. And so this project for at least seven of the eight participants, they will trade out all of their fluorescent and, and in a few cases incandescent lighting. We will replace it and are replacing it as I speak with LEDs. And we are also providing them with special containers so that they can put the waste lamps, the old lamps, excuse me, into special boxes that are prepaid when the box gets full we count it for rebate purposes, seal the box up and ship it off for recycling. The, the recycling will uh, catch, capture the mercury and retort it so it can be reused or stored somewhere. We are recycling the glass and the aluminum end caps of the fluorescent lights. For the uh, eighth client, we are, and they've already, they got the first one installed yesterday. 
They are getting smart thermostats so that they can control uh, the heating and cooling in their facilities. As it turns out, you know, they're leasing or not leasing, but they're just letting different community groups like Narcotics Anonymous meets in this one building. Um, they're providing uh, senior nutrition. And inevitably, somebody tinkers with the thermostats and then it takes a while to notice it. And this or, this church cannot stay in business if it keeps having high bills. So these thermostats allow somebody to remotely make sure the thermostat's what it's supposed to be, and if not, fix it from their smartphone. So again, we launched this program in the middle of July, barely, uh, more like the 1st of August, and we had to wrap up what we were doing yesterday. And the math that not even my board of directors has seen are as follows, that if you look at, take conservative estimates of what we did, we uh, are relamping almost one acre of interior space with LED lights. And the cost that was invested for the materials is under $12,000. We will be saving enough power every year to take care of, sorry, 42 average Louisville homes power use. We will be saving uh, a total, not counting the uh, church with the thermostats, because I can't compute that until they've used them for a year or so. But for the other seven, strictly with relamping, they're going to save a net of $5,676, all money they can plow back into their missions and, and provide more or better or even just maintain the services that they have. The average payback for all of these projects is under two years, and together those projects will be preventing 47 tons of greenhouse gases per year from going into the atmosphere. Poet, but don't know it. And uh, lastly, um, we'll, we're getting ready to roll out the full-scale urban environmental partnership and so if you know of an organization that you think would like to participate, please contact us by way of our website, louisvillecan.org, um, or you can give me a call or whatever you like, but um, and I'm trying to stop sharing my screen and I'm not even sure how to do it. Before the year's up, we will enroll a half a dozen clients into the bigger project, not just the soft start. Some of the people in the soft start will go into the bigger project, but please, if you know of an organization that you think would want to participate, uh, let us know, let them know, and they can let us know. And if you are otherwise interested in our programs, please visit LouisvilleCan.org. Thank you very much. And that was Sarah Lynn Cunningham, director of the Louisville Climate Action Network, wrapping up our Truth to Power this week with highlights from the Environmental Justice Conference held on October 1st, thanks to the West Jefferson County Community Task Force and NAACP on climate change and health. And before her, we heard from Damon Talley of MSD and Rachel Hamilton of the Louisville Air Pollution Control District. And we started it off with Tom Fitzgerald, former executive director of the Kentucky Resources Council. I'm Justin Moggs. It's been a pleasure hosting Truth to Power this weekend. We will be back in your ears again in one week's time.